Well, hey, everybody, Kent here uh, using my best NPR voice uh, because this is our intentional podcast as promised. So uh, the series Intentional, if you weren't with us, uh, was a series all about God's design for gender. Uh, And throughout the series, we told people to send in any questions that they had about these topics uh, and told them that at some point during the series towards the end, we would actually put together a question and response podcast. Um, Notice I said question and response, not question and answer, because some of these questions are very difficult to answer and there may not be an authoritative answer from the Bible on them. And so we're just going to do our best to respond to the questions, but that's what we're going to do in this podcast. So I have Sarah with me. Hey, church fam. I also have Eric with me. Hello. I thought I was going to be off the hook, uh, but here we are, and it's going to be great. (laughs) We pulled Eric in at the last moment, especially uh, after his fantastic teaching yesterday on um, kind of trans identities and how we think about those and relate to people who experience those as followers of Jesus. And so um, we've got them on the podcast, and we are just going to spend some time working through these questions one by one. So there are lots of questions, and my guess is that they're going to take a while to answer. So why don't we just go ahead uh, and get started? Y'all ready? Let's do it. All right. Um, All right, Sarah, I am going to kick the first question over to you. Uh, The question that we got was uh, the examples of the feminine characteristics of God in the Bible. So that I think is week two, where we talked about man and woman being made in the image of God. And we said that there's actually masculine and feminine metaphors used in the Bible to describe what God is like or to help give us a picture of what God is like. So this person said the examples of those feminine characteristics of God um, were all related to motherhood in some way, shape and form. And they said this could be very discouraging for women who cannot or do not feel called to be a mother. Um, Surely scripture shows other feminine characteristics of God that do not involve being a mother. So how would you respond to that one, Sarah? Yeah, I think that is a good question. And I think when we talk about metaphors in scripture, it's good to remember that they are metaphors. So for the examples we listed in the sermon, um, think about it. A lot of the women in those cultures were mothers. And so it would make sense for the Lord to be described as a mother to them. Um, But I think those metaphors aside, Anna really did a good job mentioning that there are other women that embody biblical femininity well that weren't necessarily mothers or weren't described as mothers. So we have Esther and Deborah and Mary and Martha. We have other women who were witnesses to Jesus's resurrection and then proclaimed that news to Jesus's male disciples. And then we have Phoebe, who was a servant and a deacon and delivered one of Paul's letters to the churches. And then Lydia and Priscilla, who helped give her husband instruction to a major leader in the church. And the list goes on. Um, There's a lot of women, but we obviously don't have time to list them all. But I think we can just remember, like, the Bible recognizes these women um, not just because they're mothers. And I did want to add something, too, about um, the role of mother. I think think as— like in femininity, like those can be really beautiful roles. So, um, for instance, like 
uh, I can be a sister to someone who ne- doesn't necessarily have a, a great sister, or I can have a motherly role to someone just because I am not those things to them doesn't mean I can't fulfill that role to them in some way. And women have been that for me, and it's been really sweet. And so I think we can just remember like the Lord can display those tendencies, even if um, like he's not necessarily a mother, if that makes sense. So you, even if you are not currently a mother or, or may never be a mother, you still can express those sort of stereotypically f- feminine, but right. even theologically, right. uh, those traits of God to people, regardless of whether or not you have biological kids right, of your yeah. own or mm-hmm. anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that what you said about metaphor is really helpful, right? Because mm-hmm. it's when when the Bible uses feminine metaphors to describe the character of God, uh, th- that's not meant to say that you can't be like God, that you can't embody the traits and character traits of God if you're not a mom. Mm-hmm. It's it's just the biblical authors saying, hey, you've seen a mother before in your life, right? Like right. you know kind of how how mothers are and, and the character traits that they have. And if you've seen that, you've gotten at least a partial glimpse at what God is like. So that's kind of the nature of a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I love just, yeah, all the examples we have of women in the Bible that embody biblical femininity in ways that have nothing to do with whether or not they were moms or not. That's really good. Thanks for that. Um, All right. Next question. Um, We're just jumping right in here. Uh, What is a biblical view of other gender identities such as asexuality or non-binary? So this one, I actually combined two different questions that we got in. We had one question about asexuality, one question about those who identify as non-binary. Figured we'd just address them together. So I'm going to actually do it in reverse order. Let's talk first about those who identify as non-binary. So uh, put most simply, I think I would say that a lot of what Eric talked about this past Sunday in the final week of the series regarding trans identities would also apply to people that identify as non-binary. So specifically, I'm thinking of his three points at the beginning of the sermon where he said the Bible upholds the dignity of the human body. The Bible draws no distinction between one's body and one's gender. And third, that following Jesus looks like living in alignment with the body that God gave you. Um, I think those points are, are relevant to the idea of a non-binary identity as well. So someone who is non-binary, at least best I understand it, uh, is someone who doesn't identify primarily as male or female, man or woman. Uh, So assuming that this person we're talking about is a follower of Jesus or claims to be a follower of Jesus, uh, living in alignment with the body that God gave them would look like accepting their identity as male or female, even if there is some internal tension there that they will need to wrestle with throughout their lives, potentially. Um, And as we said throughout the series, I think the Bible actually gives us a pretty wide berth in terms of what expressing your identity as a man or a woman could look like. So, uh, for instance, uh, to use some silly examples, if this person we're talking about who's non-binary, if they were born biologically male, uh, living in alignment with their body doesn't mean they need to like go out and buy a truck and grow a beard and learn how to play football. Like that's not what we're talking about. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's not what we mean when we say living in alignment with the body God gave you, because those things really have nothing to do with one's God given identity as a male. 
Um, but it does mean accepting that if you were born biologically male in the example, that makes you a man, according to the Bible, because the Bible doesn't draw a distinction between one's body and one's gender identity. So if you were born biologically female, that makes you a woman and then going from there. So so those are kind of my thoughts on non-binary. I think those same three points from Eric's teaching still very much apply in regards to how we think about an identity like that. Um with that said, uh, maybe let's talk about asexuality for a second. So if you're unfamiliar with the term asexual, um, that means that this person doesn't experience sexual attraction to men or women or anyone else with any other gender identity. That's kind of what the term means. At least last I checked, that's, that's the definition of that term. Um, so if someone identifies as asexual, uh, and they're a follower of Jesus, and let's say they are currently single, um, the good news is that the Bible doesn't think any less of a person with this particular gender identity, this particular, particular sexual orientation. So scripture teaches us that there is far more to us as human beings than just our sexual relationships or sexual desire or lack thereof. It speaks way more highly about us as human beings than just defining us based on that one uh, trait or identity. Um, now, I, I do think it, if you're a follower of Jesus um, and you identify as asexual, I, I think it is at least worth considering if that lack of sexual desire is due to something that would be healthy for you to work through. Um, just in your journey with Jesus. So in the people that I've met and pastored throughout the years, there, there have been a few situations where a person doesn't experience sexual attraction to men or women, and it's at least partly due to trauma or abuse in their past that has done substantial damage to their view of the opposite sex and therefore has put them in a place where a relationship with that sort just feels very undesirable to them. Um, so if you identify as asexual and you think it could be related to an experience like that, I think that's worth doing some some work and probably even like some clinical counseling to, to process that and to work through that sort of thing. But the counseling, I, I want to make sure this is really clear here, uh, doing that counseling and doing that work to work through those things is not for the purpose of trying to have a romantic mm -hmm. relationship. That, that may not be in the cards for you. The counseling is just because it's always healthy to try to heal from our abuse and trauma. It's more healthy to do that than it is to just operate out of it. Um, or to begin to make decisions based on kind of our psychological response to that trauma. So hopefully that makes sense. I'm not saying do counseling so that you can have a sexual mm -hmm. relationship. I'm saying do counseling because it's healthy for you in general to work through some of that trauma and any of the stuff in your past that may influence your view towards men or women. Um, now, the, all of that said, it may be that someone could identify as asexual and it not be due to something like that. It's not due to abuse or trauma or anything in their past. Uh, maybe you identify as asexual and best you can tell, you just don't experience attraction to anyone in that way. Uh, if that's your situation, at least functionally speaking, I think that would put you in a similar situation to that of what the Bible calls a eunuch. So Eric actually mentioned this in this past week's teaching. But essentially, a eunuch in the Bible's imagination or in the Bible's perspective was someone who couldn't participate in a marriage or sexual relationship because of their biological makeup 
or other prohibitive factors. So an asexual person today is a person who has no desire to participate in those things due to not experiencing attraction to anyone. A eunuch in the Bible's day was someone who didn't have the ability to participate in one of those things. So I think this is where we would actually circle back theologically to the particular honor and dignity that the scriptures bestow on people in that type of situation. So Eric referenced how Jesus talks about eunuchs in Matthew 19 with incredible honor and dignity towards them. Uh, I want to actually reference one other place in the scriptures. So this is Isaiah chapter 56, starting in the second half of verse three. God says, quote, let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. So this is metaphorical language, but basically in the ancient world where, where the priority was placed on one's lineage and extending the family line uh, and stuff like that, the tendency of someone who couldn't participate in having children would be for that person to despair, right? So they would say something like, I'm only a dry tree. I can't participate in procreation or having children or doing any of the things that make a person, quote, great in that culture. So that makes me worthless. That's how a person would process that reality. So a eunuch would be tempted to believe something about that, something like that about themselves. But look at what God says in response to this. This is down in verses four and five of that same passage. God says, for this is what the Lord says, or Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant to them. I will give within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So God actually says to these eunuchs who are despairing about sort of their situation, their lot in life, God says, hey, I'll give you something far better than a family or a family legacy. I will give you a name that endures forever. So God gives this incredible message of hope and affirmation to people who, quote, miss out on things that the world may hold in high regard, like having children or in our case, like sexual relationships. So I think similarly to the eunuch in our culture, someone who is asexual might be tempted to despair because our society puts so much emphasis on sex and sexual fulfillment and sexual relationships. We teach people in dozens and dozens of ways that basically if you're not having sex, you're not fully human. That's the narrative in our culture. But I think to those people, God would say something like, hey, I'll give you a satisfaction better than sexual satisfaction. I'll give you a fulfillment better than sexual fulfillment. And that is belonging to me and my family. You better preach, Ken. <laughs> I know I said my NPR voice, but sometimes you just got to <laughs> preach, you know. Um, so all of that to say, I know that's a very wordy answer, but I just feel like it's important to, to say these things. Um, if you are single and you do not experience an attraction to men or women, that could be an indication that God has placed a calling like this on your life. It is a beautiful calling to have, even if it is difficult and against the grain in our modern society. Um, now, I'll say one other thing, and then we'll move on to the next question, because I know this one's been long. Um, real quickly, if you are currently married and now you are realizing retroactively that you may be asexual, that you don't experience an attraction like that, 
that situation is a little bit more complicated than what I just mentioned. So, so the Bible actually communicates and emphasizes the importance of regular, healthy sexual intimacy as a safeguard for a marriage. Uh, so there might be ways that you and your spouse need to seek help or counseling in order to move in that direction. So that 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 is not me saying, I want to be very clear, that's not me saying that you've just got to get over your lack of attraction and have sex with your spouse anyway. Mm-hmm. But I am saying it's a little more complicated than just God might be calling you to have the calling of a eunuch. If you're already in a covenant relationship with a husband or a wife, it, it does make it just a little bit more complex to navigate. And so I would say, if that that's you and you need help working through that. Our pastoral staff would love to have those conversations with you. We'd love to help in any way we can. But that's kind of how I would answer that question. Maybe that question should have been its own podcast episode. That was a very uh-huh. long that's answer. A good answer. But anyway, I feel like that was important. I know we didn't exactly get into those things in detail, so I figured that could be helpful. Um, all right. Eric, why don't you take this next one um, on the page? So uh, here's the question. We had, uh, and, and this is also kind of an amalgamation of a few different questions we had, but had several questions come in on the topic of pronouns and or bathrooms. Um, if, if I could summarize them, I might put it like this. Uh, how should followers of Jesus think about pronoun accommodation? So, so using a person's preferred pronouns in conversation. And or how should we think about bathroom accommodation? So allowing a person to use whichever restroom they feel most comfortable using based on their gender identity. Uh, Eric, how would you say we should think about pronouns and bathrooms? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to start with uh, bathrooms and then go to pronouns because I think uh, it's kind of bigger picture and then can get a little more specific after that. So uh, as far as bathrooms go, uh, I would I would say for followers of Jesus and hopefully for, for most people out there, it would be to continue doing what you are doing now, which would okay. be... Uh, if someone is doing something in a bathroom space that is making you uncomfortable or that is that is doing something that you feel is inappropriate in a public restroom, you you should continue to do what you already would do, which is to tell whoever is in charge of that bathroom space. And just to be clear there, when you say someone is making you uncomfortable in the restroom that you're in, you don't mean they're making you uncomfortable just because they're in there using the restroom. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mean yeah. they are standing too close to you. They are looking at you. They are uh, doing things that feel threatening to you and your family within good, re- like all of that type of stuff is what you're saying there. Right? Yes, definitely. Okay. So if anyone is doing, doing something actively that is, uh, that I would say you consider inappropriate or that makes you uncomfortable, not just by their existence or their presence there. In the same way that we would strongly encourage everyone to not do anything that would make other people feel uncomfortable as well in those spaces. So exactly. if that does happen, then I would say continue what you are hopefully already doing, which is alerting whoever is responsible for that b- bathroom space. Just so, like you would normally do. So yeah. that they can continue to make sure that that is a safe space. Yeah. Uh, as far as what laws should or should not be passed. So with that, I do think there is some room for Christians to to dialogue about and to disagree on. Um, but, but something that is really important for us to remember is that public restrooms are just that. They are, they are public. They are shared yeah. public space. 
And so as a result of that, public officials have to do their best to try to understand that question while also trying to navigate what is best, uh, what's in the best interest of the public that is that is using the space right. that they're in. So that's kind of broad, big picture, uh, our, our stance on bathrooms. It's to continue to live your life with wisdom and also to try to be aware of the, the things that are happening around you and strive to... Uh, continue to keep yourself in in reasonable and safe situations. Yeah. Uh, now for pronouns, I think for a lot of people, this actually gets a lot more personal. Um, sure. So the the best that I have been able to tell, uh, there are two. I would say two primary positions that uh, Christians tend to take on this. Um, so I, I'm going to unpack both of those. I'll call them A and B, and just kind of give a really brief overview of of where people are coming from on those camps. So position A uh, would be that uh, people would say that you shouldn't accommodate someone's pronouns. And and the argument would be um, because it would be, in essence, uh, lying about who they are or or saying something that is untrue about them. So it would be affirming uh, an incorrect worldview instead of challenging that worldview. And I I understand that perspective um, that people come from on that. And so position B would be that you should accommodate a person's preferred pronouns because it's actually a way to show understanding and acceptance uh, of that other person. And, and it's just a general courtesy to them. So I also understand where people are coming from on that perspective. So like I said, with, with bathroom legislation, I do think in, in this topic, there is room for followers of Jesus to approach this differently and to have dialogue about it. So I am going to tell you what I personally think and what I personally tend to do. Uh, and then I will give you some things to think about on either side of this conversation, no matter which way you fall, uh, just some things that I think are important to consider. So for me personally, I tend to lean towards pro-down accommodation. And so I feel like that this is a really good way for me to show courtesy to people and to maintain relationship with people and and keep uh, keep a depth of relationship intact so that hopefully down the road uh, I am able to have more in-depth conversations with people who may have pronouns that are different from their biological sex. I can have conversations with them about Jesus in the future because I have built a healthy and deep relationship with that person. But like I said, I am not saying that this is a one-size-fits-all, you have to do this in every single situation. I'm just telling you what I choose to do in my personal life. So um, some things that I, I think that you really need to consider either way, I think both of these, both sides of this have some, have some guardrails that you need to uh, just be aware of. And so if you are on the, the side of pronoun accommodation, like where I fall, I would invite you to consider, um, does... Does there ever come a point where uh, where you actually say hard truths? Hmm. Uh, so, for instance, if you're asked just flat out, "What do followers of Jesus think about this? What is what does your Bible say about this thing?" Um, I think there can be a lot of wisdom in not just bludgeoning people uh, mm-hmm. with what the Bible says right off the bat and say, I'm so glad you asked, and now I'm going to bring out a hammer. That is not <laughs> – uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in not doing that, um, especially before there's that relationship or a depth of relationship and trust. But at the same time, it, it's also worth considering if you are never willing to say things that mm-hmm. non-Christians – might disagree with, huh. uh, I think there there's a lot of opportunity for you uh, 
uh, to think a lot more critically about that approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you will, at some point, you do have to be willing to say things that your non-Christian friend might mm-hmm. agree with. Right. And Absolutely. If, and, and if pronoun accommodation is is just a way to go, I don't want to ever say things that that somebody who's not a Christian is going to disagree with. I think we got to, we got to reconsider there because at some point that's going to come up and we have to be willing to Mm -hmm. say what's true, but that may not apply to the first time you ever talk to that person. (laughs) And if you're, it could be functionally that if you're refusing to use their pronoun, the first time you ever meet them, it's a, it's, it's kind of just putting up a wall from the beginning. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. If, if you're just operating on the basis of like, I want to be the cool Christian that uses the pronouns <laughs> that people like. And uh, then if they ask me uh, a question about why somebody else doesn't use their preferred pronouns and I refuse to dialogue about that, that's something worth considering. Yeah. Cool and, Christian in general, I think, is a bad motivation. Yeah, that you I think if, you, uh, if your primary goal is I want to be a cool Christian, I, you you may want to re- reconsider. I, yeah. I do think you are in for a rude awakening <laughs> uh, when you try to always put those two things together. <laughs> uh, and so uh, in, in kind of that same vein or that same line of thinking, uh, as far as things to consider, if you are in the in the camp that is against pronoun accommodation, I would I would really want to make sure that you that you think through the implications and that you are good personally and you are okay with the possibility of relationships uh, being broken off or discontinued as a result of that choice because that there it? are people who who will say this is my preferred pronoun and if you if you choose not to use that then I choose not to have a relationship with you and yeah. you have to acknowledge if you are in that camp that that is the reality and that is the possibility sometimes and yeah. I I do think it is worth considering uh in that same in that same line of thinking, if every single Christian was against pronoun accommodation flat out, I, I think it would be pretty hard for for any non Christians to have relationships with Christians uh, such that they could come to know Jesus one day. Because yeah. if if everyone says I refuse to do this and therefore I'm breaking off relationship with anyone who has preferred pronouns, it's going to be really hard for people with preferred pronouns to ever hear about Jesus in the context of an intimate relationship. Yeah. Um, which is a tough decision to land on. And I just want to make sure that we are thinking critically about both sides of these things. And, and like I said, there's room for dialogue, there's room for consideration, but I think ultimately it comes down to an issue of conscience if you are willing to think critically about all the different implications, no matter which side of that camp mm-hmm. you fall on. Yeah. So well-meaning followers of Jesus can fall on either side practically of that question, but we would say either way, you've got some stuff to consider. Mm-hmm. you got some motivation type stuff to consider about why you've chosen the particular route that you have and just some ways to be on guard against overcorrection either way. Yeah. Um, I love that. I think one thing I would, I would add to the end of that and, and maybe one sort of caveat is um, an exception to that. I, I also am kind of with you. I, I, I lean towards pronoun accommodation for the reasons you cited. I, I just think it's the best way to keep the relationship intact so that hopefully one day we can have more intentional conversations around this stuff. And yes, I did just use the word intentional, <laughs> unintentional. Shameless plug. Shameless plug <laughs> for the series. Um, 
uh, I in general go lean towards pronoun accommodation too. Um, the one exception that I would give to that is in my relationship with my kids. Mm -hmm. So I've got a six year old and a three year old. If my six year old wit comes home from school next week and he says, uh, dad, I uh, would like for you to start referring to me as with she, her pronouns effective immediately. Um, in that instance, I, I think it's a little bit different. There, there's some mm -hmm. additional things to consider there. Uh, one, because my son is six years old right, <laughs> and that's yeah. pretty young to be making decisions mm -hmm. like that, especially on a whim when there's been no indication of leaning that way or anything mm -hmm. like that prior to that conversation. Two, uh, because uh, there's a sense in which I, I'm, I will be very careful here. Uh, I don't think that everybody who opts for uh, asking people to refer to them with a different pronoun is doing it because it's trendy. But even social scientists right now are saying there is an element of some people are doing this just because right now it is a little bit trendy. Again, not a statement about everybody who experiences a trans identity, but it's just it, as a matter of fact statement that right now there is a little bit of trendiness to it. But third, and I would say this is actually the most important reason that this is an exception. Me as a father, I actually have a responsibility from God to disciple my kids to think well about all aspects of life and their humanity and what it looks like to to love God and to to honor the authority of Jesus in their life. And so for me, that's going to be a little bit longer of a conversation than just, okay, wit, sounds good. She, her pronouns, got it. I'll refer to you like that from now on. It's going to be a conversation where I go, all right, but t tell me a little bit more about that. H how did you arrive at that conclusion? Um, is, are these conversations that you've been having with friends? Is this, uh, did somebody tell you that this was the right way to do it? Let, let's have a conversation about this where we talk a little bit more in detail. And some of that is just because of the responsibility God has given me as a, as a father. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, there's some additional considerations there that are important. Um, man, and I'll say, for, for parents that might be listening to this that have older kids that are middle school and high school, that, that, that adds to me even an additional layer of complexity to it all. And so I would just say, man, we're praying for you. If, if you're in that situation, you're navigating the ins and outs of that, come talk to us. I think a lot of it depends a lot on the nature of the relationship and how far down that path your, your child is. Um, all of that. There's just lots of variables to consider there. And so I would say, I mean, uh, have that conversation with your community. Let them speak mm -hmm. into it. Think about it well. If we can be helpful in that conversation, let us know. But I do think when it comes to like a parent, the conversation with your kid about preferred pronouns, I do think that adds a layer of complexity to it. That, Maybe are some additional considerations um, to take into mind. So, all right. How about this one? This one maybe is a can be a little bit more lighthearted. We just did two <laughs> pretty heavy questions. Um, Sarah, why don't you take this next one? So um, this looks like it was sent in right after the uh, Jeff's teaching on marriage from Ephesians 5. Uh, this person said, is there anything that single people can glean from the Ephesians 5 passage we went over about how to treat people of the opposite sex? Or does it stop at marriage? Is there anything single people can take away from that passage, Sarah? Yes, I think single people can <laughs> take um, away things from this passage. So we didn't have a lot of time to dive into that. 
in the sermon, but I think it's good to remember that both of these postures, abandoning abandoning your life for others and submission, are really great character and kingdom values to have. And so I think for single men, you know, the command to married men was abandoning your life for your wife. Yeah. And so I would ask you guys, does your life look like you are abandoning um, your wants and desires for others hmm. and putting others' needs before your own? Mm, and so good. if your life currently doesn't look like that, I think I would encourage you to strive for it to look that way. Because whether or not you get married, that's still a really great character trait to have. Yeah. Um, so I think I would ask you that question, or do you think people would describe you as like, you always get your own way, you know? <laughs> it's a pretty good <laughs> sign that you're doing the opposite of right. abandoning your life, if people right. think that about you. Mm-hmm. And I think for single women, the command was to wives to be submissive to your own husband. And I think what I would ask of you is, um, do you take the posture of submission towards those in leadership, uh, specifically, um, if you are working, do you look at your boss and respect them? And I think, um, are willing to submit to them because again, they're not, they may not be Christians. And so you'll have to submit in some ways to their authority, um, even if they're not believers. And so I think, are you willing to submit to those around you or is your reaction to be like, Oh no, I am better than that thing. So I should be able to make the calls. And, or if you're a student, are you willing to learn from your professor? Or I think, do you think more highly of yourself and um, think your professor is not as good as they think they are? (laughs) And so again, I think those are important questions because, or to, to ask of yourself. And I think, see, like, am I embodying these characteristics? Because again, whether or not you get married, there's still really great godly characteristics to have. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if, if you're single, looking at those different arenas of your life is a good way to go. Would I be willing to take mm-hmm. this type of posture one day within a marriage? Because if I'm not willing to do it now, marriage isn't going to magically change that desire right. in me. Yeah, because just because you love someone doesn't mean <laughs> exactly. you want to do it for them. Turns out, <laughs> this might be shocking to some people, uh, it won't be shocking to married people, <laughs> marriage does not fix all of your sin issues. Really I really not. thought that it would, and I was very disappointed to find out that I was still just as sinful after I got married. Mm-hmm. Um And so, but there's a sense in which asking, am I willing to embody Mm -hmm. these postures in other arenas of my life as a single person, that's going to be a pretty good indicator on Mm -hmm. whether or not I'm going to be able to do that consistently in a marriage. But then even if you don't get married, those are still Christ-like postures to take. And that's kind of what we said, you know, back in week two of the series Mm -hmm. is that it all comes down to at the end of the day, our willingness to to be Christ-like as men or as women. Mm -hmm. Really, really good thoughts there. Um, all right. So this one's a little bit of a bigger picture question. Um, I'll read the question and then I'll kind of use it to talk more in general about the series. Um, so this one says, Eric introduced his sermon this week. And I I think in context, this was Eric's sermon on masculinity in week three of the series, Mm -hmm. um, saying that we should, that we would be talking about things that made men distinct, but it felt like the sermon mostly focused on what distinctions men shouldn't have. Um, he said it, it kind of felt like all the things mentioned that make men distinct were labeled bad or secondary to Christ's likeness. Uh, if the sermon on femininity is going to say roughly the same thing about women, which it in fact did, uh, what about men and women? 
women is distinct? Are there any traits that men should have and pursue that are distinct from traits that women should also be pursuing? So I think this question probably echoes uh, maybe the, the only consistent question that we've gotten from multiple people um, about this series. And I think it, it may have generated at least some confusion. So I want to take this opportunity to speak to it a little bit at length. Um, so in the series, we basically said that a good summary of the biblical definition of masculinity was one, questioning masculine stereotypes, two, recognizing sinful masculine tendencies, and three, uh, curbing every interest and inclination towards Christlikeness. And then we gave virtually the same definition for femininity the following mm-hmm. week. And, and I think that was tough for some people, depending on sort of their background, theological mm-hmm. formation, all of that, because the nature of the sermons each week made it feel like perhaps we were going to give these unique, mutually exclusive definitions for masculinity and femininity. I think people were expecting us to give a definition of masculinity that was in contrast with, or or maybe even the polar opposite of femininity Mm -hmm. and vice versa, which is understandable. And some of that's just by nature of how we titled the teachings, all of that, um, how our culture teaches us to think about Mm -hmm. gender, all of that stuff. Um, And quite honestly, I think I would have even said as a follower of Jesus, I personally would have approached the scriptures in the past expecting the Bible to do that, expecting it to give like this one definition of masculinity over here that is very, very different, maybe even polar opposite of a definition of femininity and vice versa. But here's the problem with expecting the Bible to do that. The the problem with expecting the Bible to give these specific, unique, mutually exclusive definitions of masculinity and femininity is that it kind of doesn't. At least as much as I was able to discern in almost two years of studying and reading and prepping for this series, the Bible doesn't really approach it like that. Now, let me be very clear that that's not that's not to say that it doesn't ever speak specifically to men or specifically to women. It it actually does that on a number of occasions. We covered some of them in the masculinity and femininity weeks. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the Bible does speak specifically to men or specifically to women and give them what seem like differing instructions. But what it doesn't ever seem to do in the Bible is to give instructions to men that are unique and exclusive Mm -hmm. to men. And it doesn't ever seem to give women instructions that are unique and exclusive to women. So we mentioned one of these in week four of the series when we talked about Peter's command to women, specifically to wives in 1 Peter 3, that they should embody, quote, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So on one level, what Peter is doing there is that he is speaking specifically to women mm-hmm. in that passage. And he, he's telling them to embody a gentle and quiet spirit. So he is he is speaking specifically to women, but we noted how in what he tells them to pursue, mm-hmm. he's actually using the same language that the biblical authors use elsewhere to just describe Christ-likeness in general. Mm-hmm. So it Paul or Peter in that passage is going, he's observing a specific, maybe sinful tendency that women could have, some women, to put too much stock in their physical appearance, their beauty, uh, adornment of jewelry, hair, stuff like that. 
But then in what he tells them to pursue instead, he actually tells them to pursue the thing that we should all be pursuing as followers of Jesus, which is gentleness and quietness, just like is described of Jesus, just like is commanded in first Timothy for all followers of Jesus to have. So that's an example of a time where, where the biblical authors speak specifically to men or to women, but the thing they tell them to pursue is not unique. It's not exclusive mm -hmm. yeah. to men or to women. What he tells them to pursue is actually Christ-likeness, fruit of the Spirit, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think what we're trying to say is that in the Bible, it does not seem like God ever has instructions to men where he tells them to embody something that women are called not to embody. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem like the Bible ever tells women to embody a character trait or a posture that men are not also called to have. It seems like what Paul and what the biblical authors do is they simply observe certain tendencies, stereotypes, whatever the case may be, of men or of women, and then he points both of them instead towards Christ-likeness. In other mm -hmm. words, Christ-likeness is what we are called to pursue. We're not primarily called to be more masculine or more feminine, however we define those words. We are called to take whatever tendencies might be there as men and women and to point all of them towards mm -hmm. Christ-likeness. And so I, I would just invite you do your own research. This I'm not saying take our word for it and don't mm -hmm. question it. If you feel like we've missed something in how we've presented that, uh, we are very open to that conversation. Set up a meeting with me. I would love to wrestle through the scriptures with you and see. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying I personally even I reconsidered some of my assumptions coming into the Bible um, based on a couple years of researching for this series and was actually in some ways a little bit surprised to find mm -hmm. out what I actually found. And something for us as followers of Jesus, specifically at City Church, um, we want to make sure that we're not ever teaching less than what's in the Bible. In other mm -hmm. words, we, we don't want to get in a place where we're avoiding certain things the Bible says because they're difficult or culturally unacceptable or whatever the case may be. But at the same time, we also don't want to go beyond what the Bible mm -hmm. teaches. We don't want to read cultural assumptions and even theological assumptions that come from outside of the Bible back into the biblical text. We think that's a that's a wrong way to approach the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so our the, all of this, our teaching on masculinity and femininity was an attempt to, to not, not say less than what the Bible says, but also not say more right. than what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like we missed something there, again, feel free to reach out to us. But that's kind of what we were trying to say in the series. Hopefully that clarifies and doesn't create further confusion. We'll see. We might get more questions in the future. But that's that one. And I'll also say to the, the masculinity and femininity stuff that we talked about, I think uh, at least some of the tension that I felt as we were working through this, similar to Kent, I think historically I have felt a lot of like – this is how men are supposed to be, or at least there's some things that like, there, well, there has to be, there's gotta be something. And, um, I think what it came down to for me a lot of the time was, was when I was thinking through like, yes, Christlikeness, we keep coming back to that. But I had this like little feeling in the back of my mind. It's like, it, that just feels too simple. Like that's, <laughs> there's gotta be more cause that feels too easy. But then, but then the more I thought about it, um, 
That's probably the only context in my entire life where I considered trying to live like Christ to be easy. And so, <laughs> when else do we say that's yeah? That's, there's no that's not other, enough of a challenge. No other aspect of my life do I think I need to be more like Jesus. But I think that's going to be way too attainable. <laughs> so I think that's also something that, that at least some of the tension that I felt, and I, I think that I've heard a little bit from other people too that that that's some of the tension that they also felt it was like that just feels too simple. But I think when we really think about it, there. There's not a lot that is all that simple about pursuing Christ-likeness in our lives. Yeah, Mm -hmm. certainly not easy. Mm -mm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think some of what happens in this conversation even is that we kind of alluded to it in week two um, of the series, but it's like the camps almost feed off of one another a little bit. And so it's like, I think there are some people on the, the theological and the political right that feel like people on the left are trying to erase all gender s- distinctions entirely. Mm-hmm. And so they respond by almost overstating the importance of gender distinctions. So they respond to the left by being like, no, gender distinctions are everything. Mm-hmm. Like masculinity and femininity are everything. They're like, you know, they're, uh, we wouldn't say they're as important as the gospel, but they're right there after, mm-hmm. you know, like they're, they make it almost more important than the Bible does. But then also on the left, the same thing happens is on the left, they, they feel the right overstating their case. And, and then they do sometimes respond by trying to erase gender distinctions. And so what we tried to do in the series is just go, all right, let's try not to be reactive to one camp or the other. Mm-hmm. Let's try to just look at the scriptures, ask honestly, what do the scriptures clearly teach about men and women? Mm-hmm. And let's teach that. Let's not teach less than that. And let's not teach more than that. Let's teach exactly what the scriptures teach. And I'm sure we did that imperfectly, but that was our goal. And mm-hmm. that was kind of how we landed where we landed. Yeah. All right. Next question. Um, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? How should a follower of Jesus approach same sex attraction? Great question, Eric. Yeah. So uh, I'll start, I'll start kind of big picture for city church. So city church takes the stance um, that uh, God created and intended sexual intimacy uh, to be experienced between a man and a woman within an exclusive marriage context. And so I, I say exclusive meaning like that man and that woman in that marriage. <laughs> With each other. <laughs> not not like you get married and now you've got a kind of free pass for whatever you want to do. <laughs> right. um, so God intended sexual intimacy for, for a man and a woman within the context of a marriage. So we would say uh, living a life of obedience to Scripture when it comes to sexual intimacy would be uh, not participating in sexual intimacy of any kind outside of that context, whether that would be a, a same-sex uh, sexually intimate relationship or a, a single non-married person who is participating in any kind of sexual intimacy with someone. Both or, of those two things are outside of God's design yes. for sexual expression. Anyone who is, who is participating in sexual intimacy with someone that they are not married to within the context of marriage that we talked about. So that would be the stance that, that we would take as far as, uh, as far as sexual intimacy goes. So, um, kind of zooming out a little bit, we also believe at city church, um, that the family kind of the nuclear family design is a great design by God where people get to experience, uh, being deeply known and loved and cared for. And it's a really beautiful creation. And we would also say, and we've talked about this a lot in some different series that we have done, we, 
we believe that all followers of Jesus have been adopted into his family and are yeah. a part of God's mm-hmm. family. And, and therefore, all followers of Jesus can and should be participating in those relational bonds together. And, and that's what it looks like to, to be a part of a meaningful, intimate family relationships with one another. So um, not only does that give everyone the opportunity to participate in that family intimacy and relationship, it also gives responsibility to all followers of Jesus to to be uh, playing an active role in those relationally intimate settings. And so we would say that includes Anyone who is attracted to anyone should be, if they are a part of God's family, they are able to participate in those family relationships. And I, I think this is a hard topic for a lot of people sometimes to, to reference back to what Kent was talking about on the, the question on asexuality and um, non-binary. Uh, we in our society um, teach people in all kinds of different ways, if you are not having sex, you are not having relational intimacy or you are not uh, valuable as a person. Uh, You do not get to experience some, some part of life that is essential. And, and our culture ingrains that in people in a way that, um, that it feels like intimacy of any kind is now off limits for some people. And that, that's just not the reality. And um, it, it, again, like when Kent was preaching earlier, uh, God says that he <laughs> preaching gives us earlier in the podcast, yeah. preaching in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you got to preach on and off stage. <laughs> we need it, you know? So he talked about how, how God tells us that, that he gives us a satisfaction that is so much better than yeah. a sexual satisfaction, which is, yeah. which is a hard concept for us to wrestle with in a culture that idolizes, um, sexuality over over most things in life, or uses that as the as the main identifying feature. Um, so we would say, as as far as big picture, what does it say about same sex attraction? We uh, we would say that participating in sexual intimacy outside of that man and woman marriage context that we uh, that we talked about is something that uh, we would we would say followers of Jesus should not participate in, but that also does not mean that someone who has who who just exists with an attraction to the same sex is not automatically existing in a predisposed sinful state, and so they are not automatically more sinful than someone else because they experience an attraction to somebody. Um, so that is kind of big picture where we land. Like Kent said. If you have follow-up questions or thoughts or, or want to dialogue more about this, we would we would love to do that. But um, within the context of City Church, we try to always um, continue to to create a space and make sure that we communicate to people uh, in the same way that Jesus welcomes all of us. We want to be a space mm-hmm. that welcomes all people and and gives an opportunity for all people to see and experience the love of Jesus. And we want to be part of facilitating that for people. So we want to make sure that anyone who walks in our doors, um, if they take nothing else away, that they can take away the, the idea or the reality uh, that, that we want to communicate that love to people. We want people to experience the love of Jesus through meaningful relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. So we would say sexual expression is reserved for the exclusive context of a man and a woman and a lifelong marriage relationship. 
Um, and the church has to continue to be a place where people who experience same-sex attraction can be accepted and known, uh, and they can pursue repentance of sin alongside the rest of us. Right. Absolutely. It shouldn't be that we are calling them to a type of obedience that we are not calling other people to mm-hmm. or pretending like their particular sin is worse than other sins or anything like that. We should all make up a church family where we are pursuing Jesus repenting of sin together. Absolutely. And I, I heard one author say uh, one time that if, if you as a follower of Jesus feel like Jesus is calling someone else to give up more in their life than he is calling you, then it, it's a pretty good indicator that you don't realize how much Jesus is calling you to. Yeah. We're all actually called to deny ourselves, pick up our cross mm-hmm. and follow them. Absolutely. It's not a unique calling to people that are attracted to the same sex. That's mm-hmm. all of us. Love it. All right. Um, okay. So uh, we're just hitting all the tough questions today. How about uh, why does the Bible say that women shouldn't be head pastors or preach? Sarah, you want to take this one? Hmm. So you're going to make a woman answer this question. Huh. <laughs> well, I certainly huh. wouldn't answer it myself with a woman in the room who could answer it. That, would, that feels like a no-no on so many levels. So I figured I'd kick it over to you. Well, okay, I'll answer it. <laughs> um, what I think this person is referring to is one to two passages in the New Testament that some people take as prohibitions against women teaching or exercising authority in the church. Hmm. I will say it is likely a little bit more nuanced than just a prohibition against women ever leading or preaching and teaching in the church. For example, we don't even use the term head pastor Mm-mm, at right. City Church because mm-hmm. we don't think that's a biblical term. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you came to our week on femininity, you'd see City Church does have environments where we aim to champion and lift up the voices of women in teaching the scriptures. And we will continue to do that as the years go on. Yeah. But as for City Church's specific stance on the one to two passages in the New Testament, we've talked a lot about this as a staff, and we are currently working on a paper that speaks in great detail on this subject and actually unpacks our church's stance on it. Um, So while I would love to unpack this question for y'all here, (laughs) it probably makes more sense to just wait until we can unpack it in full detail in the paper. So. That's my answer, and that's what you'll get. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just staying very neutral. Like, yep. Swiss, I've outsaid Sweden. Switzerland? Who's neutral? Switzerland. Switzerland. Switzerland is neutral. Sweden is also great, but Switzerland is neutral. But specifically with the neutrality, that's Switzerland. Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, so, yeah, the goal right now is uh, sometime next year, uh, we'll be mm-hmm. putting out that paper on women and ministry and leadership. So, be looking for that in the near future. Um, All right. Next question is not anonymous at all. It is actually from pastor in training, Eric Freeman. I believe he actually submitted the question while standing on stage this past Sunday. So that's how we know it's from him. I didn't violate his privacy uh, by calling him out on that. He actually told all of you that he was submitting this question. So here is the question. What would some specific applications be of the 1 Corinthians 11 passage about men not presenting themselves as women and vice versa? So just for recap, if you didn't hear the entirety of the teaching that Eric gave the last week of the series, uh, we mentioned that part of following Jesus is living in alignment with the body and therefore the biological sex that God gave you. So we got that from Deuteronomy 22 verse 5, but then from the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
11. So there in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul basically makes the point that women shouldn't deliberately dress and present themselves in ways that were seen at the time as culturally masculine, and men shouldn't deliberately dress and present themselves in ways that were seen at the time as culturally feminine. So the question is, what things would that apply to in today's (laughs) culture? So I will preface like saying, just like Eric did, that there is room for robust dialogue and debate among followers of Mm -hmm. Jesus about the specific ways to apply this. Uh, We are doing our best with this question to draw specific cultural applications from a text that doesn't explicitly name what those cultural applications might be in our day and age, at least. So if you come up to me after hearing my answer to this question and you go, I disagree with what you said, I will probably say, I would have expected you to disagree uh, Mm -hmm. because we are doing our best to figure out how to apply a principle that is in the Bible. So we're Mm going to see it differently, most likely. But I think there are a few applications that I would feel fairly confident in putting out there for our culture in today's day and age. Uh, I think anything that aims to deliberately mask or reject the body and the biological sex that God made you as would fit with what Paul is discouraging people from in 1 Corinthians 11. So, mm-hmm. f- for example, uh, if a biological male uh, chooses to regularly wear skirts and press on nails and stuffs a bra to make it look like he has breasts, that to me is doing a good bit of work to mask or conceal or reject the body that God gave him. Uh, if a biological female shops exclusively in the men's department of every store that she goes to, uh, she goes to a, a barber shop to get stereotypically masculine haircuts. She tapes or binds her breasts and begins taking hormones to lower her voice and pump her body full of testosterone. It would seem to me there that she is also doing a good bit of work to mask or conceal or reject the body that God gave her. Mm -hmm. Now, I have deliberately dialed those examples up to a pretty high intensity just so you can see the more obvious applications of this principle. Uh, So what about less intense examples of these things? So how about a man painting his nails? Uh, Plenty of my male friends right now paint their nails. Now, generally, it's not like they paint them pink and yellow with glitter on them. Um, It's black or blue or something like that. Uh, I have multiple female friends who have what at least some people would consider to be more stereotypically masculine haircuts or even physiques. Uh, So are those things wrong for a follower of Jesus to do? I think my answer would be not necessarily. But I do think it's worth all of us asking, are there ways that I need to consider if Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 apply to me or the things I am currently doing? Are there any ways that I might need to realign or or readjust my understanding of my body and my gender and my gender identity with what we see in the scriptures? And I think as long as we're all willing to ask that question and answer it honestly, uh, I think we can agree to disagree on some of the specifics of the application. But I would go back to what Eric said on Sunday in his teaching. Passages like 1 Corinthians 11 have to mean something Mm -hmm. to us today. 
If I get to a place in my reading of the Bible where 1 Corinthians 11 is just null and void, it has no application for me today, has no application for how I dress or how I present myself or how I think about my body or my gender. If I don't let passages like that confront or correct anything about the way I go about my life, or if I get get to a place where I go, no, I can wear whatever I want, dress however I want, doesn't matter how masculine or feminine it is, and the Bible has nothing to say about those things at all. If that's our posture as followers of Jesus, I think we need to rethink and reset because the Bible actually does have lots of things to say about how we think about our body and how we present ourselves and our gender and all of those things. So that's my take on it all. Again, room for well-meaning Christians to disagree there, mm-hmm. but I would circle back to 1 Corinthians 11 has to mean something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it is also worth considering uh, there are, because it has implications for our lives as followers of Jesus, like Kent said, with what what am I trying to accomplish by whatever I am presenting myself as or wearing or anything like that, that does mean that there are some things that are not hard and fast rules. Like if we see someone of Scottish heritage wearing a kilt, <laughs> we are not going to be like, that's a skirt. What are you doing? Um, so there, there is some context. If you see someone from, from you know, southern India, from Kerala or Tamil Nadu wearing a lungi, and we're like, that's a skirt. What do you, you can't do that. I love how you just threw that in. It, it should probably, it, it's worth clarifying if you don't know Eric that he grew up in Nepal. So that, that not everybody just knows those words. That was incredible what you just did. I couldn't spell them if you asked me to, but I won't. That was great. But yeah, but yeah, there's some cultural understanding that needs to take place. Yes. Yeah. So it is. And and like Ken said, there is, there is lots of room for dialogue. Hopefully uh, we can have healthy, reasonable understanding dialogue about this and lots of other topics, but that, that is really important to, to consider is the, the stuff that he talked about from scripture and making sure uh, that there are no aspects of scripture where we read it, don't like what it says, and then say, well, that must not apply to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't need to do anything with that because God wouldn't want me to feel uncomfortable yeah. um, because I don't think that's the case. So it's really important to consider what does this actually say to us today and how can we go about applying it in a way that is uh, that is a part of us healthily pursuing Christlikeness as we go. Yeah, that's good. All right, next one. This is not so much a question, but a request. So we're already in an interesting category here. You're just reading straight off of the submission, too. This is not so much a question, but a request, this person says. During the sermon on femininity, uh, so that's week four of the series. Yeah, and just a correction, too. This was actually on men and women as friends. I think I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think this person mistyped it. So he's actually referring to the masculinity teaching in week three. Um, no, no, men and women. Still wrong. <laughs> men and women as friends. Don't worry, you got this Take number four. Don't worry, so guys, I'll person, answer this one. <laughs> this person is referring to week five on men and women as friends, just like we all said just now. <laughs> From the beginning. Um, yep. All right, I'm going to finally read what they said now. Um, during that teaching, uh, you, meaning me, I teach that week, you suggested that men should actually use the word date when asking a girl out. 
I fully support this, this person says. However, asking a girl out doesn't always end in happily ever after, as most of us know, or even a yes. Uh, When a girl says no, the manner in which she does it matters a lot. An unclear answer can cause a lot of confusion and snowball into bigger pain down the road for everyone. If someone is putting themselves out there, assuming to, to ask a girl out, I think is what's being referred to there, then a clear no from her is the least that they deserve. Uh, can you please, please touch on your pastoral advice related to this? Thank you. Sarah? Yeah, he'd been hurt. <laughs> he been hurt. Well, it's anonymous, so we don't know. But yes, certainly sounds hurt. like he has been hurt. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah okay. It sounds like this is addressing a fairly specific situation. Specific. But um, but all jokes aside, I can see where this person is coming from. And I appreciate their vulnerability in this yeah. question. So thank you for submitting it. Yep. And I would say I think clarity from both sides is helpful. So when a man asks a woman out, he should be clear on what he's saying. So again, like we said, if it's a date, call it a date. And I think likewise, women can also love their brothers in Christ well by being honest by how they're feeling. Like if you're not interested in him, you can say, I would just prefer to be friends. And that is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think where this person is coming from. Like if you are someone who gets uncomfortable when you're asked out on a date and you don't like conflict, so you just say yes, just because, (laughs) or maybe you to to avoid conflict are like, no, it's a busy season and you leave that person (laughs) in limbo, you know, that can cause room for not being clear and it can create hurt in the person who is doing the asking. And I will say sometimes seasons are busy, like you genuinely are. And you can, I'm not saying you can't use that as an excuse, but just be honest and say like, Hey, this season's not great, but maybe can you ask me in like five weeks? And if anything changes, you know, you can be clear on that. But again, I think clarity from both sides and open communication is really, really helpful to not hide feelings. Even in the beginning, I know it's new. Um, because I think the, the goal that I would say you want for each other is, whether you say yes or no and it ends or continues on, like how do you be good brothers and sisters in Christ to one another? So I think just dealing with this situation with as much maturity as possible. And at the end of the day, give each other grace. Asking someone out is really awkward um, and they may not do it right and that's okay. (laughs) And I also think being asked out is awkward and they may not respond well. And so I think give each other a lot of room as brothers and sisters to be awkward and embrace <laughs> the awkward, you know? Yeah. I mean, so it's like, yeah. So let's be clear on both sides mm-hmm. of the asking out being done. Let's if let's use the word date. If what we're talking about is asking the other person on a date, let's make sure we're clear on that. If the, if the answer is no, not ever, don't say uh, not right now. Ask me mm-hmm. again soon. Like try not to say things you don't mean. And at the same time, let's acknowledge that it's it's an awkward situation. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and I'll add to to men, maybe to this specific man who's asking this question. I don't know. Um, In the same way that it is awkward for you to work up the courage to put yourself out there and potentially be rejected by the person you're asking out. uh, Let's keep in mind, like you said, Sarah, Mm -hmm. it's also awkward for the person being asked out. 
The difference with them is it's potentially even more awkward because they didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're finding out about it in the moment. So let's have some understanding that maybe they didn't have the precise right words to say in response. And if you're confused by, did they say no right now or did they say no, not ever? Well, then circle back around with them and ask ask them for that clarification Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just say, hey, when you said Oh, no, not right now. Did you legitimately mean not right now, but you could be interested in the future? Or did you mean it's a no? Mm-hmm. And and let's go from there. Let's have some compassion for brothers and sisters that it's just an awkward situation. Yeah. And it's awkward for everybody. So and let's I'll have say, understanding there. And I was going to say from my own experience, when Eric and I, if you guys didn't know, we are married now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when we were dating, there was like that two week of weird limbo where you're like, what are we? And I was like, what are we? Please tell me what we are. And it's okay to have those conversations. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So clarity all around. Also understanding. It's mm-hmm. helpful. Love yes. it. All right. Um, next question that we got. Um, how slash when do we approach the conversation about gender identity and expression with our children? So if you're parents, how do you navigate this conversation? When should you have that conversation? All of that. Um, this is a really, really good question. Um, and it's one that, to be honest, I am still figuring out <laughs> as a parent myself, both because, as I mentioned earlier, my, my kids are still fairly young um, and because this whole conversation around gender and gender identity is relatively new for all of us mm-hmm. in our society. Um, it's only really been a topic of conversation for maybe the past 10 to 15 years at the most. Um, so it's all new. And so I will say I personally don't feel like I have much expertise on this. This has not come up yet with my six-year-old or my three-year-old. Maybe it will in the near future. I can circle back around and update y'all on that. Um, But I do not feel like I have a ton of wisdom here yet. This is very much a question I am asking along with whoever sent this one in. Um, So I'll say uh, if you're a person in our church or connected to our church that does have thoughts and wisdom on on when to have these conversations, how to go about them, uh, feel free to shoot us an email or contact Mm -hmm. us or reach out to us. We may even need to do a podcast with you on it to ask you this question and let you teach us how to think about it well. Um, I think that could be really helpful. I don't really feel like I have a ton of resources here. I will give you a resource, though, that I do think could be helpful in this specific area. So Preston Sprinkle, who Eric mentioned in his sermon this past week, he's written an incredible book um, on transgender identities and how to think about them through the lens of the Bible called Embodied. He's also written another really good book called People to be Loved, which kind of does the same thing around the topic of homosexuality and same-sex attraction. He's also written a different version of that book uh, that is specific uh, written to teenagers wrestling with gender identity. Um, I'm forgetting what it's called. I want to say like living in a gray world. Something about a gray world is in the title. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. Um, anyway, all that to say, he is an incredibly helpful voice in all of these types of conversations. We lean on what he says a lot. He's a New Testament scholar, but also he just does an incredible job of approaching these conversations mm-hmm. with compassion and understanding, um, as well as biblical clarity. But I bring all of that up just to say um, he has actually started an organization in the past, I want to say three to five years, that he calls the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. They have a website 
website that has a ton of resources on it for free. There's also mm-hmm. some paid resources, which I, I have not used yet, but based on other stuff that he has created, I would say they are well worth whatever he is charging for them. Um, and I think they're just using that, the paid resources as a way to continue the ministry of what they're doing, which is really important work. There's a whole division or a whole uh, side project of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender that specifically equips parents to navigate conversations with their children mm-hmm. about uh, sexuality and gender and how that relates to following Jesus. Um, specifically even talks about if your son or daughter wrestles with their gender identity um, or experiences same-sex attraction or something like that, uh, walks you through how to navigate those conversations well. Um, we will try to put a link um, to that website for his organization in the show notes of this podcast. If not, you can just go to Google and search for the, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll come up. Fantastic resources there that I think will help a lot on questions like these. Mm-hmm. Anything y'all to add to that one? No, I think that's great. And uh, you, you were right. The The book is uh, Living in a Gray World, the the one specifically written for teens. And right. uh, yeah, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, their website, it's just thecenterforfaith.com. They um, have some incredibly helpful resources and um, it's uh, it's really helpful. It's been really helpful for me in thinking through all of these things because uh, they're, I feel like their resources specifically are, are super helpful in that they are very pastoral. They are they yeah. are not just informational. They have really, really helpful information and they've done tons of research, so much more than I ever could. Um <laughs> And they they have they do not have incorrect information, but they also are really really good at communicating that information in a really helpful and pastoral way, which I think is is a, a really really great tool to have both for for you personally if you are thinking through and walking through all of this, but also in helping equip you to have healthy conversations about this well with other people. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, again, thank you all so much um, for this. Uh, special thanks to Eric and Sarah for joining me on this podcast. Really appreciate their voices in this conversation. Um, wanted to thank everybody who sent in questions. I think we ended up in one way or another answering every question that was sent in. I know we combined some and all of that, but I think we addressed everything. Um, if there's anything you're wondering about, especially if you're a part of our church here in Knoxville, if there's things that you're still wrestling with in response to this series, please let us know. We would love to walk through any and all of that with you. Um, Thank you all for sending in such thoughtful questions. Uh, Just really, really good to hear how you guys are processing this series, thinking about it. We pray that this intentional series has just been an opportunity for all of us to think well uh, about the scriptures, about ourselves, about our bodies, all of that stuff. And ultimately, we pray that it makes all of us more faithful followers of Jesus Mm -hmm. and more helpful missionaries um, as we go about our daily lives. So thank you all so much. Until next time, Kent, Eric, Sarah, how do people do podcast sign-offs? We can just say I'll bye together. Ready? One, One, two, two, three. Bye. Bye. (laughs) That was something. We'll see you guys soon.